Well, it's been a while since I had a Lord of the Rings reference, so I figured I should open up with one, just so everybody remembers how much of a geek I am, not a nerd. There's a difference between a nerd and a geek, Ryan. Those of us who are geeks and nerds know that there's a difference between people who like Star Wars and people who like Star Trek. It's <laughs> geeks versus nerds, okay? <laughs> and I am a geek. Well, in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, there's a poem um, that's actually kind of a famous poem, and it has a prophecy in the poem of one of the main characters whose name is Strider, um, and he's kind of like a wandering ranger. And the quote is famous. Matter of fact, those of you who aren't geeks or nerds, you probably bought the tire cover for the back of your Jeep Wrangler having no idea it was a quote from the Lord of the Rings. How embarrassing for you. Because <laughs> now you're a geek. And that quote is, not all those who wander are lost. And so here's the actual poem. At least the first two stanzas. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Now, were you to spend some time analyzing that poem and discerning the intended meaning, you would realize that what the poem is actually about is that things that may appear rough or dirty on the outside actually have something precious and valuable within, which is um, a stark contrast to, uh, say, a gaudy facade that looks shiny, but it's worthless underneath, whereas a diamond will not shine until it is polished. So in The Lord of the Rings, Strider secretly is the rightful king, but instead, appearing to everybody else, he looks like a homeless ranger. And so why do I share this? Well, it's been about a year since all of this began to unfold around us. And I think that I can share openly and kind of corporately as a corporate representative of how all of us have been feeling. And so if you haven't been feeling this way, good for you. Don't tell us, okay? <laughs> been depressed, been anxious, and we've been able to talk ourselves out of these things logically. Well, you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be frustrated. You don't need to be depressed. You don't need to stockpile ammunition. Right? We start, we try to talk ourselves out of these things logically, but the reality is that it's been a difficult year. That most days, as I've said before, either to people in conversation or maybe even from pulpit, I don't remember what I did last week, so... I feel like a bucket with gaping holes in the bottom, that you wake up eager to be filled to afresh by the Holy Spirit, only to feel depleted in a matter of time, a very brief matter of time. And so going back to this poem, is there a purpose hidden behind and beneath all of this loss? Or, as so many on YouTube would have you believe, this is just an attack from the enemy. Is it? Or does God have purpose in it? Is this just spiritual warfare because the enemy is always trying to get you down? Or is this from the Lord for some divine purpose? And depending on who you Google and search for, your algorithm on your search will tell you which side to believe. But, you know, feeling that sense of loss is actually a dangerous place to be. 
See, because Jesus speaking in the uh, parable of the sower, he says that it is the worries and concerns of life that choke out your fruit. How much fruit's already been lost this year? Squandered away on worries and concerns. Truth is it does you no good to expend unnecessary energy on all of the potential failures of the last 12 months. But the reality is that we are wandering in the wilderness right now, but are we lost? Don't you feel at times like this last 12 months has been like the Israelites being brought out of Egypt by mighty exodus only to wander for a generation in the wasteland? Haven't you had days when you have felt like God is silent, where you've felt socially distanced, I mean alone? Do you feel like you are wandering, but are you lost? As Steve reminded me this week, there is a difference between being aimless and being in the wilderness. And we need to realize today that being a wanderer is part of your identity in Jesus, but not being lost not being aimless. We can still have a firm goal in mind even while wandering in the unknown. So we're looking at 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12 today. Just two verses. And after reminding us, his readers, or his hearers, of this glorious identity that they have as living stones, as royal priests, as recipients of mercy, of people who were not a people and now they are a people, all of these beautiful things that we've been looking at over the last few weeks from 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter brings it full circle to the identity that he brought into focus in the first verse of the entire letter. And this is what we see in Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, that's one identity. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's two more, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if they speak against you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That means the return of Christ. God's people, dearly beloved by Peter and by the Lord, are sojourners and exiles. A sojourner, by the way, if you were to look that up in the uh, dictionary, is someone who resides in a place temporarily. Whereas an exile is someone who has been barred from returning to their own native country. Typically, they've been you know, for political reasons or punitive reasons, maybe they're in exile because they are an enemy of the state, that sort of thing. An astute reader should notice that those two identities, sojourner and exile, are not nearly as positive as living stone and royal priesthood, okay? Nevertheless, they are just as true as the others. We love the identity of being, you know, beloved and being a son and being adopted we do not like the identity of being a wandering exile but that's who we are suffering restlessness disappointment and yearning for more having a constant unmet hope 
in this life is part of your identity. Adam was the first exile, being forcibly displaced from the Garden of Eden. Abram was sent out as a sojourner into a far country yet to be seen. Jacob labored as a migrant under the abusive control of his father-in-law. Joseph was sold as a slave to a land that was not his own. Moses himself dwelt in the wilderness for 40 years after trying to take the issue of deliverance into his own hands. Then he had to die in the wilderness after the entire nation was subjected to a generation of sojourning because of disobedience. Under the monarchy, the entire nation of Israel would be exiled under the oppressive boot of Assyria and Babylon. David himself would be a sojourner displaced by his son, displaced by King Saul. But it's not always sin that causes sojourning. Jesus sojourned, traveling around Israel. He said that even foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has nowhere to rest his head. Jesus was a sojourner. Jesus was a nomad. Jesus knew he was just passing through until he would return home. And it's this type of sojourning that Peter has in mind, as well as the author of Hebrews, by the way, when he says that we are simply pilgrims on our way to the city of God. See, what we need to realize as we wrestle with these identities of exile, these identities of sojourner, is this reality. In this life, we will feel as though we are wandering, but we do have a destination. We are not an aimless people. We are not a purpose, purposeless people. We aim for the glory of God, knowing with confidence that we will see it fully unveiled. And the spiritual tools that God has given to us, namely the spirit, the word, prayer, proclamation, love, these tools are to be employed regardless of where we wander, how long we wander, or even the impetus for why we wander. Exploring deeper, let's look at those verses one more time. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter implores his audience, in light of your identity as a stranger in the world, pay close attention to your conduct. Specifically, he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh and keep your conduct honorable. Why? Well, I met Hassan in Greece in the Moria refugee camp almost two years ago, I guess a year and seven months or something like that. And during, those, uh, during that first batch of time, we were putting together refugee tents um, from the UN, and Hassan had nothing better to do, and he had been a, a mason um, back in uh, Iran as a refugee from Afghanistan living in Iran and then had to leave uh, Iran to go back to Afghanistan and then Afghanistan to try to get to Europe where his son had fled and was there some two or three years prior. And so Scotty and I and David, we got to spend some time with Hassan while we were in Greece. He was there, had nothing better to do, so he figured he'd help us with these tents. It was, almost, it was a couple of years, I believe. It was almost 
a few years that Hassan had been trying to travel from Afghanistan to get to his son who had made it to Sweden in that first batch of refugees, um, which was, I think, 2017 or something like that, when Germany let a bunch of refugees into Germany and the European Union followed suit. When we went back a second time with the elders for a, a vision trip, we saw Hassan again and we were able to spend some time with him, go out to dinner with his family. Just a few days later, he would be finally receiving his documentation to leave the camp but then go to Sweden so that he could be reunited with his son so his family of five would finally all be together. But now Hassan faces the threat of deportation along with his whole family. You see, while Hassan, after Hassan had left Afghanistan, but before he made his way to Sweden, President Obama made the declaration that the war in Afghanistan was over. Anybody remember that? Well, for us as Americans, that's just a little difference on a piece of paper. But what that meant for Hassan was that he was a refugee of war one day, and the next day he was an illegal migrant. And so now in Sweden, Hassan has no legal reason to remain a refugee because Afghanistan is, quote, not under a status of war anymore. And so Hassan and his family are now classified as illegal migrants instead of refugees. Although he was a refugee when he left Afghanistan, he's now considered to be illegal. And despite all of the hardships that would face him at home, such as al-Qaeda, saying to his sons, either you join us or we kill you by the end of the week, that's not enough for him to have permission to stay. So he's in a process of appeals. Why do I share this? The first thing that we need to realize is that Peter writes this because being in exile or a sojourner is a dangerous thing to be. As in exile, you are at the mercy of the nation where you currently reside. You are always an outsider. You are always a threat. You are always the minority. As an exile, the only people who truly understand you are who? Other exiles. People who have walked the road you've walked. In this case, the refugee highway, they call it. Christians, similarly, are exiles and sojourners. You will never fit in with your host country or your host culture. There is something intrinsically different in your new identity that will make you stand out as a square peg in a round hole regardless of where you live, whether it's the United States or Costa Rica or Afghanistan. See, but remember, the culture of the world is on a spectrum, and so you may feel more out of place in Saudi Arabia than you do in California, but the bottom line is, as a follower of Christ, your host country and your host culture will always be hostile to you in some capacity. Because you are in exile, you are a sojourner, this is not your home, you're a traveler, a wanderer. And as a wanderer, why does Peter share these things? Abstain from the, the passions of the flesh and, and, and do your best to live at peace. And why? Because as an outsider, the last thing you want to do is draw attention to yourself, which is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, strive to live a quiet life. Quiet life. Quiet does not mean silent. 
Remember that Peter just got done telling us to proclaim his excellencies. In other words, proclaim the gospel. So what does Paul mean? Is he contradicting Peter? No, not at all. You see, because for Peter, living a quiet life means living a life of integrity, which is why he tells his readers to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to live honorably. Abstaining from the passions of the flesh means to be on guard against the temporary pleasures of life. See, we think of passions of the flesh, we read that, and we immediately think of all of the bad things that come to mind, you know? Well, don't do, you fill in the blank. Whatever comes to your brain, we think those are the passions of the flesh. But if we're consistent interpreters across the New Testament, we realize this idea, the pleasures of life, the passions of the flesh, the desires for other things, they are not always exclusively evil in and of themselves. But we're called to abstain from them. For example, relationships are not evil, but they can be evil, right? We have kids present, so I'm not going to paint the picture, but I think you can pick up on what I'm dropping. These are not vices all the time. Often the things that are the passions of the flesh are gifts of God. Wine in and of itself is not evil. Alcoholism is self-destructive and others destructive. The enjoyments of the flesh are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and enjoying hobbies and talking with friends. And each of them, if not kept in submission to the king of kings, can be deadly and can quite efficiently wage war on your soul. When Jesus speaks of what holds a man back from following him in the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't say, it's the fear of persecution. Do you know what he says it is? A new field that needs to be inspected. Some oxen that need to be retrieved. And a new wife. He says these are the things that hold a man back from the kingdom of God. Not the things we would expect, are they? These days, we have had a great number of enjoyable things stripped from our lives, haven't we? Hobbies, going out to eat, even school, all of these things have been impacted and many more. And as sojourners, living out of a tent with only the bare essentials strapped to your camel, isn't it enticing to just settle down in Babylon and enjoy your life like everyone else gets to do? Isn't that a very real Allure, it's a very real temptation, and it can wage war on your soul. The greatest, hear me, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but appetizers. So that by the time the main meal arrives, you're full. But Peter then mentions something else. He says, live honorably among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. First, notice 
they will speak evil against you. He doesn't say if they speak evil against you. He says when they speak evil against you. This nation, if you are a believer who is striving to walk in Christ, whether a Republicans in power or a Democrats in power or a Patriot Party's in power or a Libertarians in power, they will speak against you. Because indeed, what does Jesus say? You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake in order that you will bear witness before them. The world is not your friend. Biblically, the world is the kingdom of Satan by definition. We should pray for it. We should have compassion on it. We should be kind to it. We should demonstrate love without measure towards it. But we should never be in love with it. It despises you. And one day it will turn on you like a wolf to sheep. Second, Peter is assuming that you have good deeds. Living a good life, a life of love, kindness, compassion has great value. An angry life has no value. A bitter life has no value. A good life a life of integrity has value. But what value? What kind of value does it have? Well, read the Psalms. It does not have value in getting you what you want. If you want to get what you want, throw your integrity out the window. Because living, this is not, God is not a, uh, you know, you put in the coin, you pull the lever, and you get what you desire. No. You live a life of integrity because you're called to it. Not because it will make you richer or because it will give you nicer things. Indeed, I can assure you that if you always do the right thing, you will not end up on top. You will end up on the bottom. You will not be the hero nor the victor, but you will be counted as great in the kingdom of God because many who are first will be last and many who are last shall be first. Which leads me to number three, your integrity will pay off when Jesus comes back. You may not experience it today, but one day you will. It will be a testimony of your faith to all who know you on the day of visitation. So why do I share all this? What does this mean for us? Right now, we are experiencing a lot. We are weary and the truth is we have been privileged in the United States to, for the most part, enjoy amazing religious freedom with no real threat of severe persecution. But this is not your identity in Christ. Perhaps, if there's anything that the last year has taught us, it's this. What we are missing most in our faith in America which we are fighting so hard right now to ensure that it doesn't happen, but it is a guaranteed part of your identity. What we are missing so much right now in the United States of America is a theology of suffering and an understanding of it, which, according to the New Testament, is non-negotiable because Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. Instead of growing frustrated and angry, as I've been doing, as you probably have as well at, at times, it's time for us to embrace the identity of a wanderer, 
There's three things I want to point out about wanderers, and then we're done. One, sojourners are wandering, but they are not aimless. We know where we are going. Do you know where it is? The New Jerusalem. It's the far country. We are going to go and be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who went ahead to prepare a place for us and he's coming back to retrieve a bride. And you may feel as though the church and your life have no meaning and no aim, but that is a lie. And it's an idol God is trying to strip from your reality. The goal hasn't changed. We exist to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples until the whole world hears. Are the hurdles different? Absolutely. Are the tactics changing? Yes. They need to shift because what we were doing in America wasn't working anyway. But let us not grow weary of doing good because we will reap a harvest in the proper time if we don't give up. I refuse to lay down and die from apathy. And hear me, it's going to be offensive. If I go to jail, let it be for preaching the gospel and not for refusing to wear a mask. Do you hear me? Live and die for something that matters. And what matters is the gospel. We all hate the rules. Revolve hasn't lost its oomph, but it is struggling. But Jesus is still building his church, and Revolve never had any guarantees. Jesus never said, I will build Revolve, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, I will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My goal is not to play, plow my way back to the ruins of Jerusalem, but to teach you how to be a gospel light in the midst of Babylon, while we wait for the restoration of all things. In other words, I am far more concerned with how to equip you to function in the most impending calamity that is surely coming than to stop the calamity from coming. Second thing I want you to realize about sojourners, sojourners have no space on their camel nor time for excess. You know, when you need to travel long distances, you should travel light. It's kind of a joke now, but when I travel internationally now, I just bring a Jansport backpack. So much of what we thought we needed to, to do church was just extra. And I don't mean that in a good way. We can make do with a whole lot less. We don't need a permanent location, even though it's really nice. And we don't need all the bells and whistles, even though I really enjoyed them. Actually, there are incredible benefits to being trim and thin. Like, for example, radical generosity. You know, I had this thought this week, and maybe I'm prophetic or maybe I'm crazy. You can take your pick. But what if God is quickening the pace like it says in 2 Peter 3, and the return of Christ is actually on the horizon, though we may not want to acknowledge that. And what if God orchestrated for us to lose our building without having a drop-off in finances for the sole reason that we can give more locally and internationally so that at this last final lap, his fame will be spread because it would be foolish to invest in something else. What if that's God's plan? 
Wouldn't that be worth it if we actually knew the day of his return? Of course. We have no space nor time for excess. And the third thing is this. Sojourners need to stick together. Look, these days are hard. Being in the service with your kids, it's difficult. Sitting out in the cold, it's a challenge. We need one another. Exiles, refugees, they stick together. Sojourners, sojourners travel with others. Refugees don't go at it alone, but they band together. These are the days when it will take a village to raise your children because you can no longer subcontract it to the government. If you see a parent struggling, by all means, go and help them out. Wear your mask and say, do you mind if I sit with your kid and color with him or her because I can tell they're distracted? Help them out. Isn't that what we should be doing instead of just kind of saying, well, I hope their kid would shut up. <laughs> These are the days when it will be a challenge as people lose jobs. These are the days when it will be a challenge when you have to homeschool your kids while working. Do I have the answers? No, I don't. Do I know what to do? Nope. But we will figure it out by the Spirit's leading. Psalm 84 is a psalm about pilgrims and sojourners. And this is what it says in verses 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God and Zion. The highway to Zion, Zion is another word for Jerusalem, by the way. The highway to Zion is the pilgrimage that we all take. Zion, another word for Jerusalem, the city of God. We are on that path. We ponder it. We give our hearts and our strength to it. But before we get to Zion, what do we go through? The Valley of Baca, which is the Hebrew word for suffering. It has no water in it except during the early spring rain. But God's people make springs in it with their tears and their weeping as they go on this pilgrimage. And that isn't weakness. It's actually from strength to strength. Weakness is to settle for Babylon. Strength to strength is to keep marching on in the wilderness as a wanderer. The weak thing to do right now is to give up, to grow apathetic, to not heed the warnings of Scripture, to let your love grow cold, to neglect the dozens of commands about one another. Do you know I read an article that 65% of Christians think they can be Christian without community? I read that this past week. Really hard to one another yourself. Now is not the time to grow faint-hearted, to lose faith, or to lack courage. Now is not the time to isolate yourself. It is the time to press on and persevere. Are we wandering? Yes. Do we feel like strangers in our own country and culture? Yes. Are we exiles now more than ever before? Yes. But we are not lost. We know exactly where we are going. And Revolve Church is wherever we are. 
together. I want to invite you guys at 4 p.m. tonight at our old worship center, we're going to meet to pray for God's wisdom and direction as a church. So that's going to be tonight at 4 p.m. If you want to join us, the elders will be there to lead a time of prayer. As we seek God to know what he desires for the next right step. Okay? Let me pray for us, and then you can feel free to chat about these things at your table. Father God, I pray that anything that was from my flesh and not from your spirit would be forgotten and forgiven. I want your spirit to be the one who's instructing, not me. God, we thank you for the last nine years of Revolve. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know how, if, but we're assuming, the Equality Act will change the face of ministry forever. God, we don't know at what point in time we will see the persecution turn more aggressively towards your people. But God, we know that in all these things we are more than conquerors. And like Paul says in Romans 8, all day long we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul viewed that as his identity. God, would you help us to be biblical Christians and not cultural Christians? I pray that we would embrace the King of Kings. God, help us to hear what your Spirit is saying. Give us the right posture in our hearts. In your name, amen. Why don't you take a couple minutes to just discuss what struck you the most about today's message, what you liked, what you hated, what was confusing, some of those other questions on the back of your page.